How does a writer distill an iconic novel series into six hours of live theatre? I'm Dino Dimitriadis. Welcome to Staging the Nation. We'd like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today. And we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, we shine a light on some Australian writers that have grappled with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. In this episode in the series, I'm delighted to be speaking with the brilliant Kate Mulvaney about her epic The Harp in the South adaptation. A great Australian novel, a portrait of Sydney as it once was, the Harp in the South trilogy follows the trials and tribulations of the Darcy family over 30 years, from country New South Wales in the 1920s to the inner city slums of Surrey Hills in the 1950s. The beating heart of this exuberant play is always its carousel of characters. Kate Mulvaney is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter and performer. Kate's recent adaptation of playing Betty Bow has reopened the wharf renovations at the Sydney Theatre Company. She was announced as the 2020 winner of the Mona Brand Award for Women, Stage and Screen Writers. She had two new plays premiere in 2019. Her hit play adaptation of Friedrich Schiller's Mary Stewart premiered first TC at the Ros Packer. Her original work, The Mayors, premiered at 10 Days on the Island for the Tasmanian Theatre Company. The Mayors won the 2020 Tasmanian Theatre Award for Outstanding New Writing, along with five other Tasmanian Theatre Awards. In 2018, Kate's adaptation of Ruth Park's acclaimed novel, The Harp in the South, premiered at the STC. The play won both the Stage Orgy Award and the Major Orgy Award, along with the David Williamson Prize. It was also nominated for a Helpman Award for Best New Australian Work, and won the Sydney Theatre Award for the same category. I could go on and on and on. Her works include The Rasputin Affair, Jasper Jones, Masquerade and The Seed, and that's before we even get to her performance and screenwriting credits. So I'm gonna stop there and say welcome Kate Mulvaney. <laughs> Thanks, Dina. <laughs> so lovely to have you. Um, we've been trying to have this conversation for a while. We have. <laughs> so, it's almost a year, it's almost, almost a year, but yeah. we're here now. We're here now. And we're talking about a little play <laughs> well, I'm in the wrong place. Yeah, then, totally. So a little play. No, it is such a it's such a privilege for me to be having this chat with you. Um, I want to start with a question that I've asked everybody who sat in that chair there. I'm always really interested in that in that seed moment, that moment where you go, "This can be a play," or I'm going to delve into this play. Mm. What was that process for the adaptation of Harp in the South? Um, for me, it's all about character. Mm. and the characters that Ruth provides in her work um, are so rich and so authentic and such a part of the Australian kind of patchwork uh, of our culture and our, our demographics and our, our past and our future. And she seems to encapsulate that. And, and, of course, they live in our heads, these characters. We give mm. them our own voices and we, we create the, the dresses that they might wear and the shoes that they might not mm. wear and things like that. But um, 
for me, I get excited by that because it means that I can draw on a team. Yeah. I can have actors play those roles. I can have an amazing designer uh, like Renee Mulder to, mm-hmm. to put those characters in <clears throat> those clothes. I can have a director um, set up these scenes that only live in the pages of the book and our imaginations. There's something so beautiful about bringing imagination raw- to roaring life and that for me um, is what really, really drew me to, to the Harp in the South and, and the, the beautiful Darcy family. Mm. Was it something that you'd had in your mind for a while to, to tackle or was it something that the idea came to you? I was, it was, <laughs> I was the writer-in-residence at the STC, um, I, I won the Philip, uh, the, the Patrick White Fellowship, and so I'd been sitting at the STC for about a year, a year just working mm. on whatever I <clears throat> wanted to work on, and it was around that time that Andrew Upton was leaving, and he wanted to leave his successor with um, something epic, something huge, and something really, really Australian as a uh, commission, as a development. Uh, so he actually asked me to put forward a few ideas. Um, he wanted me to do actually Power Without Glory. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked it, but it, it didn't appeal to me theatrically. And I, it would for some another writer, but for me, mm. it felt very masculine. And I wanted to celebrate women, uh, in particular, the women of Australia. And so I put together a list of I think about 12 options of either Australian books or Australian events, um, Australian identities that we could uh, uh, mould a play around. But the the top of my list was the Harp in the South trilogy and I wanted to do the trilogy, not just the Harp in the South because I think Mrs. is an extraordinarily overlooked novel and I think Poor Man's Orange is a devastating novel and I knew it would work really, really well. On the stage after we'd made everyone fall in love with those characters to um, pull the rug out from under them, which is what happens in Poor Man's Orange, and luckily Andrew agreed, and luckily everyone that became involved at the STC after he left agreed, and it just became this um, passion project for so many people, and I had my team. So great. Yeah. So great. Uh, yes, the trilogy, and it, it and it is a huge amount of writing that you had to grapple with. Mm. It's not your it's not your first or last adaptation. No. Do you have a process for approaching this mm. kind of work? Yes, the first thing I do obviously is just read the book, uh, get to know it very, very well. I read it uh, with different ideas in mind. I read it looking for the feminist slant mm. through it. I look I read it looking for the cultural slant through it. I read it looking for the I, I love putting music in my plays, mm. so I look for the musicality that might be present in certain scenes or certain characters um, and my my books often end up being this sort of uh, <laughs> color chart of yeah. highlighters um, that I can understand and, and you know scribbled notes I, I treat my books appallingly yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the uh, equal to that um, I ask everyone that I meet if they've read the book mm. And if they have read the book, I always, always check what their favourite part is, what their favourite character is, because obviously people from different backgrounds will have different things that they relate to. Uh, and I make sure that that's all taken in. And then I start to just work out what, what, what what's going to make delicious scenes. 
what story are we trying to tell? Mm. Who's going to be our lead character through it? Might not always be the same person as in the book. Uh I do a lot of research into Ruth. Like for this, I, I wanted to know where she was at when she wrote the mm. book and I wanted to see the world through her eyes. And absolutely, no matter who I, uh, who I adapt, I make sure I'm very, very respectful to the, mm. to the original author and their ideas. Um, I work very closely with the Park Estate or with the author's estate, whoever it is that I happen to be working with. Uh, to just throw around ideas and I try to get the team together as quickly as I can so that I know things are possible, Yeah, you know, so that I know we can have the house um, on Plymouth Street and uh, that David Fleischer is up for that, you yeah. know, and that Renee Mulder is up for there being 90 characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but only 18 actors. Yeah, totally. That sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just constantly just checking in, checking in, checking in. And then a great period of isolation where you just, I mean, I don't even remember writing it. Mm. It's its so, you, I, you just dive into this pool for three years and you come out the other end and you've got to play. Mm. Um, you kind of come up for breath and uh, and there is the formation of something there that of course gets heightened and tightened as you as you take it into rehearsals so mm. it's yeah all of the processes start and end like that did it get a lot of development or was a lot of the the, the development work on it done in the room um, we had we had like maybe two readings of it mm. um, we didn't have I actually don't get a lot of development yeah. on my plays, funnily enough. I, I really do write a lot in isolation uh, and I do it in the room. Like I tend to work really hard and fast mm. in the room and I'm so grateful to work with the, especially the actors who have to deal with me coming in. I'm one of those writers that goes, monologue yeah. for preview tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or cut that scene, we don't need that scene anymore and, you know. All yeah. the lighting designers go, we've just plotted it, that kind of thing. But uh, it, a lot of it happens in the room and especially with the uh, the kind of casts that we use for our, for our Ruth Parks, it's such a beautifully diverse set of people. Mm. I want to be able to say to them, it's yours. If you think it needs something, let's make it happen. Mm. If you don't think that's truthful, then let's make it truthful for what your character would do or say or, or look like. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the development happens in the room. Mm. Yeah. I once heard playwriting described as, or playwrights as, as described as either architects or gardeners. <laughs> I don't know about that necessarily, that binary, but it's it's quite interesting to think about, you know, people who cultivate over time but or people who really sit and, and, and structure an architecture, you know, the yeah. architecture of the work. How structured are you with that? Do you kind of feel your way through and write what speaks to you or do you are you sitting in spreadsheets and, and oh, wall no. charts? No, no, I'm very instinctive. I'm I very mm. I come at my playwriting the way I come at a character as an actor. I don't do a hell of a lot of I do a lot of research. Mm. I do a lot of research as a writer and as an actor, but then I just see what filters through um, and and always cross check with the people that are I'm involved in. Uh yeah, I, I, I'm not one for structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it just sort of forms itself. Um, I'm very much sitting in the room going, it feels like it's lagging now. I need to get something in there to, you know. I, like for Poor Man's Orange, the Poor Man's Orange part of this play, for example, uh, it goes very dark. And the reason it's a very, very dark 
unexpectedly dark um, moment is the book is. Mm. When Ruth Park wrote The Harp in the South, she wrote it under a pseudonym, The Hesperus, because she felt like the wreck of The Hesperus when she finished it. And she handed it into the Sydney Morning Herald writing competition um, and everyone assumed it was a man. And when she won it and went up to get the money, there was this huge outcry going, you know, women mm. shouldn't write like that. She's, I mean, she got called, it, she was really, she got in so much trouble for this beautiful book that was had accolades thrown at it until they realised it was a woman. Yeah. So she kind of went, you think that's dark. You think, my, you know, women shouldn't write like that. I'm going to write a sequel. So she wrote Poor Man's Orange and made it desperately dark mm. and sad. Um, and... And there's a, you know, so that happened in the playwriting process, but there was a moment where Kip and I kind of looked at each other and went, it's too sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's too dark. It's too, we've got to give them some hope yeah. at the end of this. So I was, just before I came in here, I was looking at all of my old Harp in the South files because I keep everything. And, uh, and it's um, <laughs> Poor Man's Orange. Funny version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Poor man's orange. Even more funny. But poor man's orange. Dad joke. Yeah, that's great. And there's all these, you know, that we were trying so hard to kind of just put some light into it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the structure shifts all the time. The tone of it shifts all the time. Um, audiences give us those um, key signs as well. You know, mm. you, you realise that they've, they really fall in love with one character or they really love a particular joke. So... Let's get that joke back in again later, so that they can have that delight again. Yeah, um, it's always all playwriting. I think, as as isolated as it is for a while, it is about um, reading the room all the time, mm. all the time, out of respect uh, for everyone involved, but also just to make a better play, mm. to involve everyone's hearts and minds and imaginations and mm. histories. Mm. Yeah. What's your um, big question so early on? What's your relationship with writing? I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate to know a lot of playwrights who are, who are close friends and, and it's so different. Yeah. Is it something, is it always a refuge? Is it a love-hate? Is it a torturous process? Does it shift? Uh, you know, every now and then you'll have one of those jobs that you go, oh, God, this is an effort to sit at the desk. Yeah. And, um, but I'm really lucky that I, I, I can... Um, pitch an idea to a company at this stage of my career and they'll mm. more more often than not they'll they'll trust me to to uh do a good job on it um but i work really i mean i will sit at a desk for 18 hours a day yeah i shouldn't it's very bad for me it's very bad for my health <laughs> physically and probably mentally but once i'm in a playwriting world i can't get out of it mm. i just it really is like diving to Atlantis or, or sitting on a cloud. It's just one of those things that I, I'm so wrapped up in the discovery that the time just goes so fast. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you have a play and you don't actually remember writing it. I don't remember writing that 218-page play that's sitting yeah. next to me right now. But I'm so glad I did. Um, I love writing. Mm. I love it. I love the power that comes from the written word that becomes the spoken word that becomes the lived experience of the of the audience in the theatre mm. and that that will shift the next night and the next night and the next night. Yeah. It's just, so, it's just so powerful. And that you do change minds and hearts with, you, you know, the, there is power in the pen. 
Yeah. Yeah. Truly believe it. Yeah, and when you get to, I mean, you, the 216 pages, you, when you get to sit with people for so long, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's you, you, you don't shy away from sort of durational theatre experiences or <laughs> <laughs> theatre events. I mean, no. I, mean I, I love it. I, I, I remember saying, I saw, you know, both, you know, in, in the same day. Oh, I, you I, did? I, you yeah, did I love that. I'm a sucker for it. But um, what draws you to that kind of, durational, long-form theatre experience? I'd never done it before, so I was very excited about that. Um, I love, you know, like when I saw your angels, I did the same, like sitting there and knowing you're in for the long haul Mm. and the space that came from it. It it was actually, it's weirdly easier to write a a six-and-a-half-hour play than it is to write an an 80-minute play because you've got to really, really cut the fat for an 80-minute play. Mm. Um, but with this, we had space and time and um, air to breathe, and I think that's what people needed to get to know this neighbourhood of Surrey Hills and the people in it. Mm. just meant that we could shift the focus from the main players to the next-door neighbours to the, you know, to the, the rats on the, in the gutters. Um, we could look at every microscopic element because of that time. Mm. Yeah, the texture of the world yes. is so rich. Yeah, that's right. We had the time. It, 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 we could indulge in a good monologue, mm. you know. <laughs> and there's nothing like a good <laughs> yeah, monologue yeah. on stage and seeing an actor at this, seeing Helen Thompson give this monologue about being, you know, mm. the, the Surrey Hills uh, madam. Yeah. And, and going there, going into a confession booth and hearing the full confession mm. rather than just getting a scary of it, which is what you often have to do when you're time mm. poor. But there was just, yeah, the, it was terrifying though. I remember the, I'd never had, I'd never even performed at the Ros Packer, let alone had one of my plays on there. Mm. I'd never had a play on at the STC. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there in first preview with about a third of the audience there. Like it wasn't very full at that stage. And they were about to watch, they were going to be at the theater for nearly eight hours. And I knew that. <laughs> and I just remember I started shaking with terror going, what have I done? Yeah. What? Who do I think I am? Who do they think I am? This is – and I really went back to I'm just a little kid from country WA. I do not deserve this. I shouldn't be here. Absolute imposter syndrome. Um, and that didn't leave for almost the entire season. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, so, you know, the audience is filled out, and yeah, it became a phenomenon. It became, it became this, this thing, sort of yeah. landmark theatre event. As yeah, and and that eventually, I just kind of relaxed into it. Finally, like two thirds mm. of the way into the season, and went, no, they want to be here, and and this is it. This is who you're writing for. you an epic play needs an epic audience involvement, and they they gave that those mm. people that came to the show. Yeah, it's just incredible. Seeing everyone have dinner after, like in the dinner break, sharing their thoughts yeah. between tables—that was my favourite thing to do. Was just yeah. to, to listen in on the conversations and mm. yeah, and seeing who was invested in which characters. Yeah. it was just it was magical. Yeah, really, really was. Yeah. It was um, it, and that's always—it's the best part of being a writer, the anonymity of it as well, mm. and getting to be a little bit of a fly on the wall um, at, at such events and listening into what people say and 
Yeah, it's not always good. No. You've got to take it all, right? Yeah. You've got to take it all. If you believe the good yeah. reviews, you've got to believe the bad reviews yeah. as well. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit of how you structured it, so your decision to kind of go part one and part two mm. as a, as a theatre event. How did that play out? Um, I think, you know, I think that was, funnily enough, the Parker State said to me, don't worry about Mrs., don't worry about it. It's it's a tricky book. She wrote it last. Mm. She wrote it. Ruth wrote it last, and and um, there are some some discrepancies in there. I think just because she was elderly when she wrote it, some things don't quite necessarily match up. Yeah. But it's I really loved the book, and I went up. No, if I'm going to do, I can't do two of the three. I have to do all three. And there was something about the country girl in me moving to the big city. That I mean that. That's what Mrs. is. Mm. It's about a country girl. Um, it's about Margaret moving with Huey Darcy to the to the Emerald City of Sydney and getting there and realising it's not what they expected and how hard it is to exist there. And I'd done that myself. I'd moved from a town just like Trafalgar, mm. come to the big city and and it scared me scared the life out of me and and yet I was so intrigued by it too Ruth had done the same Ruth had moved from New Zealand and come and with all these hopes and dreams to Surrey Hills to find herself sitting in this poverty-stricken suburb sitting on a doorstep and just listening literally listening through the walls the paper-thin walls to people Mm. and so that's misses to me and so it was really important that we did start there that we knew where they'd come from and that we walked this golden pathway with them that eventually became becomes tarnished and filthy and they find themselves in the slums of you know um sorry hills we have to take go from the golden light to the darkness and that's what mrs provided me so i fought really hard Mm. to have mrs in there with not a huge amount there is a lot in mrs there is new characters that I, i i didn't use and um trajectories that I kind of cut away but it was really important to me that we meet the entire family so that in the harp in the south when Eni turns up on the doorstep we know what Huey's in for we know she's ferocious Mm. um and you can feel the audience just slowly but surely falling in love Mm. with these characters and getting to know them like they were their own neighbors and you need the golden light in order to pay off poor Mm. man's orange to really, really see how bad things have got and our responsibility as a community, even now. Um, we can't just bathe everything in a golden light at the end. It, we have to see the um, dilapidation and I could only show the dilapidation by starting in Trafalgar. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, it was so it was so beautifully structured. Thank you. You've got this, um, you know, I've, I've noticed in a lot of your work this, this interest in history. Yes. This interest in the past, mm. um, and how how you draw on the past to really kind of reckon with the present in a way. Mm. Um, where did that start? Well, what is it about looking back that 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 interests you so much? I'm just a history nerd. I just mm. think we can learn so much from history. Um, I know that sounds like a really pat statement, but. There's so many things in history that have never been reconciled, obviously. We know that very well in this country. Um, And sometimes it's easier to get an audience to come with you on a political idea 
or a cultural idea or even an entertainment idea if you um, allow some space. Um, they'll get it. They'll see the uh, they'll see the mirror image of themselves. Um, but I think it's really, really important that, uh, particularly in this country, that we don't let our history go. We have to go, no, 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 we haven't reconciled this yet. We've still got things to do about this history. Um, so let's go there for a bit. Let's revisit it and see um, see if we can't come up with some kind of mm. resolve um, by the time we get out. I, I have a history personally in my own body. I, I have... I was born with Agent Orange-related cancer and that's never been reconciled politically, culturally, internationally. Um, that's, it's still something that... It's, it's an ongoing part of our history and our legacy, but it's been swept under the carpet. So I, I think there's that in me as well, as someone who lives with a very toxic, literally toxic history inside them. Um, I'm really interested in pulling that kind of stuff apart and I recognise it around me um mm. and so a lot of my a lot of my plays deal with the past mm. yeah in order to make a pathway to the to the future yeah and and what's really interesting i mean that's that's so beautifully apparent in all your work and 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 what's so interesting to me though is how you you also manage to do it through the lens of your present and i think with something like adaptations i'm quite i'm always curious to know you know, where does Ruth end and Kate start? <laughs> where is that line between authenticity and poetic license? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, I mean, Ruth and I are so similar, mm. having never met, but I have spoken to a lot of people who knew her and they're like, oh, you guys, you would have got on so well. Yeah. She, you, we, it seems we've got the same sense of humour. She drops breadcrumbs in her books that are just so cheeky. Um, you have to. The thing with Ruth is, you have to pick up the breadcrumbs, or you have to pick up the rock and see what's underneath. Mm. She will kind of um, drop some amazing. Um, I mean, there's an example in the heart in Half in the South where she, Dealey Stock, keeps going to um, buy Lysol, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just sounds like you know they, they've got a. Uh, a foot problem or something in the in the brothel, but it's actually, you know, when you really really go, why does why does she just use this throwaway line? Get me ten tubs of Lysol, and it's because it was an abortive liquid, mm-hmm. so her girls could have abortions by drinking it. You know, they could self-abort any babies that were, and so you pick up what something that looks um, gentle and funny, and you realise that there's this whole other underbelly underneath it that is really sad and dark and well-researched. Mm. So I have to match her research. I don't know how she did her research without Google and the things that I have, but um, yeah. I do like to pick up those threads that are that she's left out for us and, and tie myself on there. Mm. Um, her, I come from an Irish heritage, so for the Harp in the South there was a lot of my Irish family um, vernacular kind of in there, the the famous scene where they, they're having an Irish off at the dinner table, Enie and Huey, that comes from my family. Um, she's, yeah, I don't, I don't ever want to tread on her work and yet I feel like somehow she's taken me by the hand twice now. Mm. Yeah, she's just taken me by the hand. Mm. 
Do you ever feel with with adaptation that you, you're also trying to reconcile with, well, I guess what the the current conversations or, or where theatre is now, or, mm. you know, and how you might mm. reckon the past with that very... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard with Ruth because in some of her books she uses language and words that we don't use. You mm. don't use those words anymore. But back then they were used. And you have to struggle with that. You have to go, do I, if it's set in the 1950s, mm. Australia, um, just as racist then as now, uh, do I use these words? Um, do I use these ideas? Do they have a place? Um, so you have to be really particular about what you use. You have to always check in with the people who have to say it or hear it um, to make sure that they're okay with it being used. Uh, and we have to turn it. We have to take it from being a horrible word into making it mean something or a horrible notion, making it mean something on our stage. Uh, in a way we have to say, do you remember that we use this? Mm. Do you realise that we still live by this sort of um, horror? Uh, that Even though we don't use that word, we're still living in this world. So it, it's, it's a very, very fine um, tapestry mm. of taking what she's given but also giving it a new flourish mm. um, and shining a very different light on it to what maybe she was. And yet it all seems to land in the same place um, because she was, a, she was a good woman. Yeah, she wanted – she saw the unfairness and the prejudice and the bigotry in the, in the world around her, particularly in Surrey Hills at that stage, and she, she was shining her own light on it in a different way. Yeah, I, 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 I watch her work or I read her work and I, I, I wish I could meet her, you know. Like yeah. you've got that – she's got that texture about her. Yeah. You go, this would be such a fascinating dinner conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah she's just – and apparently she was. I mean, I, I can't – it feels weird that I haven't met her. <laughs> it's like just feel like I sit in her brain yeah. and her heart a little bit and have done for the past six years. Mm. Um but she's just, or even longer. I mean, I wrote, I read Playing Beady Bow when I was 11 years old and I immediately fell in love with the writing of Ruth Park. But she's, uh, yeah, I mean, she wrote, she wrote The Muddle-Headed Wombat as well. She's, yeah. just, got, <laughs> she's just incredible and to, she's got every base covered that she can write about The Muddle-Headed Wombat but talk about Lysol being used for abortion in Poor Man's Orange is just... Extraordinary. She, yeah, and... We're so lucky that we um, we had her, and it's such an honour to remind people of her work. Mm. Yeah, just to, and and of all ages to remind them that she existed, and we can't let people like Ruth be forgotten in our cultural canon. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want people who are who listen to this and who may not have read the Harp in the South mm. adaptation, the trilogy. Uh, to pick it up because it's an astonishing piece of writing. Can you give me the five-minute version <laughs> okay. of who these people are and, and, and what sort of circumstances we, we find them across yes. the story? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, the Harp in the South is basically it's based on the family, the Darcy family, who moved from the small town of Trafalgar in the 1920s and find themselves in Surrey Hills, Sydney in the 19, um, post-war, uh, post-war 1930s and 40s. 
forties uh, and fifties, and they there's no mention of war in it. It's mm. about the this family trying to find their place in what was then the slum areas of Sydney, uh, and. Along with that, all of their neighbours and all of their community also trying to find their place in a poverty-stricken part of Sydney. Uh, And they're Irish. They're Irish-Australian. So it's very funny. Um, It's very dirty. It's very grotty. Um, There's a lot of music in it and musicality to it. Uh, But basically it's a character study of a suburb and the people within it. Beautiful. And can you tell us about some of those gorgeous humans in the world sure let me let me um let me open up the uh the script and um tell you about some of the characters now the thing that happens the thing the thing that is sort of central in the harp in the south is when they arrive in sydney hugh darcy and his missus margaret uh they're filled with hopes and dreams, of course, and then they soon realise that the, the cobblestones are not gold, that they um, mm. are slippery and manky and um, and that the streets are dangerous. And they have a son called Thady, and at the age of eight, Thady simply disappears off the street. And so Margaret spends her lifetime searching for him. In these, she doesn't want to move away from this place because she's sure that Thady is going to show up one day. They also have two daughters, Dola and Rowie, um, and these two sisters form the heart of our play. We really follow these sisters through their trajectory um, of what it is to be a young woman as well at, in that era where you're not expected to go to school, you're expected to be a shop girl. Um, we meet... Dearly Stock, who lives next door, she's the Surrey Hills madam and all her girls that really own the streets and roam the streets. Uh, who else we've got? We've got um, uh, Eni Kilka, the mother-in-law of Hugh Darcy, who turns up on the doorstep destitute and moves herself into this ramshackle house that's falling apart. We've got Charlie Roth, who is the beautiful La Perouse, Gadigal man, who... Uh, himself has nowhere to go he doesn't have a family and he connects with the with the Darcy family falls in love with Rowie uh, we have Lick Jimmy who lives next door the grocer and he's come from Shanghai and uh, he's he basically provides the sustenance and nourishment uh, to this suburb we have Johnny Shearley and Miss Shearley who live upstairs in this boarding house of the Darcy family and Johnny is um um, intellectually disabled and Miss Shirley is simply at her wit's end. Again, a single mother bringing up this child, a grown man by this stage. In another room we have Mr Diamond who's a Protestant so they begrudgingly let him stay even though they're a Catholic house um, and he's queer and he uh, is struggling with his queerness at that time when it was just a no-go in that in that time. And they're, they're just a few I mean, it goes on yeah. and on and on and on and on. And uh, we have, we also, speaking of queer, we have two gay nuns as well, Sister yeah. Theophilus and Sister Beatrix, who run the uh, the Catholic school and um, but are in love with one another. This is all there mm. in Ruth's books. The, I didn't have to come up with this. I, when you read between the lines and you pick up those breadcrumbs, you go, oh, I see what she's trying to say here. Mm. The secret kiss on the train station of the nuns. Mr Diamond telling Hugh over and over how much he loves him. 
and that he's got a fish inside him that won't stop swimming. These beautiful descriptions that you go, what is that fish? That fish is his queerness. Mm. It's his. Yeah. It's something needing to bust out, and um, and he can feel it every time Hugh's near. Mm. There's just these incre- these characters are the the reason I um fell in love with the book, and it's why it was such a special thing to to bring them on the, mm. to put them on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for going through some of those because I, well, one, your love for them is so apparent. <laughs> um, but also it gives people a real sense of there is so much texture in this work and there is so much that you've captured. And it's, you know, I, I, I first came to your play seeing it, but reading it several times after that, uh, I've picked up more and more and more and just seen how much you've kind of peppered the writing so beautifully mm. um, with that, with the texture of that world. Well, she, Ruth has given us so many... I'm really lucky because a lot of it is my my own vernacular, my own. I, I can just hear them talking to me, but but that conversation that I create with those characters comes from beautiful. Line. My favourite line in the book is Margaret yelling at Huey when she discovers he's been having an affair with a prostitute, with it, with a sex worker. Yeah. Um, uh, he, which again at that stage was just so unheard of and yet it would have happened all the time unspoken I guess is the word she yells at him what's a body born for and I just that line what's a body born Mm. for coming out of this woman who has stayed quiet her whole life just got me just got me because there's still there's there's still women there's still femmes that have to scream what's a body born Mm. for to get seen and to get um authenticated and uh, th- those lines are, you know, they're, they're all the way through Ruth's books and I just, you have to build on them. Mm. They become the themes of the play. They became the, the, they become the absolute crux of what the play is about. What's a body born for? And you've got to earn it. Mm. Yeah. And to follow these women a- 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 yeah. across such a period of time. Yeah. It's, you know, you show it, you don't have to say it. It's, it's you, you see how the characters orbit around each other and you kind of really get a sense of what they're up against. That's right. They are so, it's such a hard fight in every single way. And uh, it's great having a character like Dealey Stock, mm. who is ultra modern feminist sex worker, um, you know, dealing with, talking to Rowie, who, who, who gets raped. You know, talking to her about mm-hmm. the, the the footsteps, the, the pathways that women are forced along, not led along, they're forced along these pathways. And it was beautiful writing for that. It's beautiful writing for Rowie where she's it's just trying to work the world out. Um, beautiful writing for Dollar who is, you know, she's, she's our youngest uh, female on the stage but she's the one that really, really spots the inequity mm-hmm. and fights, rallies against it. And there's a, there is a speech in there that I wrote um, at a time when I was particularly furious at our industry and the uh, the stuff that was going on, and I wrote that monologue in response to that, so that it could be said on um, on the Packer stage, mm. the Ros Packer stage, so that and, and you know using the theatre to call out to the to the gods and go, yeah. this has got to end, and yeah. that's Dollar's speech um, that comes in Poor Man's Orange about mm. men. <laughs> yeah, and once it's been said on on that kind of stage, it's been said, right? And it's, yeah. it's a great, it's a great, yeah, it's a great 
imprint to leave yeah. as well, theatrically. In yeah. Terms of, yeah. But of course that's not in the book. That came yeah. from what was happening at the time. And when you've got um, someone like Contessa Trafone who's playing that mm. role and you know you can throw anything at her, even if it's out of fury, just go, Look, yeah. I wrote this last yeah. night because I'm really cross about some stuff and we need to, and I want the audience to hear it. Can you learn it? And she just devoured it. And mm. um, yeah, every night on that stage was just beautiful and heartbreaking. Yeah. And hopeful to see her do it. So um, I'm really lucky that Ruth and I jigsaw together well in that way. Mm. Yeah. One of the on one of the earlier um, episodes of this podcast, I, we talked a bit about class mm-hmm. because I think that one of the most underrepresented explorations in Australian playwriting is class. Yeah, I agree. Um, but it, you know, you can't not you know wrestle with class when you're when you're wrestling with this kind of storytelling yeah yeah it's i think it's vitally important uh it exists and i got really i'm actually not a big reader of reviews but i did hear about one that called it poverty porn wow and i was so (laughs) yeah (laughs) like horrified by that going well what do we not tell these stories of Mm. of people who come from underprivileged take a look around our country. Our country is, we have a super, very highly privileged people in this country, Um, but so much of our population comes from a place of of, of being told to stay down there, you know, and our our traditional custodians of this country are told that, the the women are told that, Um, our queer community were told that, you know. Yeah. Why can't we explore these people? That's mm. our job. Mm. I'm not interested in putting on some toffee, foie foie, kind yeah. Of yeah. Oscar Wilde style Australian version of, of a play. I want to tell the story of these people. I grew yeah. up with these people. Uh, so to call it poverty porn really raised my ire a little bit. I <laughs> Got bet. my Irish blood boiling, <laughs> yeah, totally. that's for sure. I bet. Um, but I, yeah, it's. It was really important for me with with the Harp in the South, but also with playing Beady Bow, that the audience they might walk in as individuals, but they walk out as a community. And it's the the only way we can make any kind of change in our world is to look at the person next mm. to us and check in on them and see what they need. Mm. And if we can provide that, then we have to help them. And that's what the Harp in the South is about: walking out as a community, not looking at our phones, but looking at each other. Mm and checking in um and i don't think that's poverty porn i think that's um, a community service Mm. in a way um, and something that theater can provide yeah absolutely and when you think about the fact that so many of our theaters are also located (laughs) in now gentrified spaces or or places but but places that actually historically have been poverty stricken yeah yeah. It's quite, it's an extraordinary collision. That's Whether right. you're sitting at Belvoir or at the wharf uh-huh. or wherever you're sitting or Bel- Griffith. And Belvoir's Stables, yeah. an old tomato sauce factory. Yeah. You know, the wharfs, uh, the, it's it's a home for mm. working class people. It's a home for their stories. It's, and, and on ancient land. Yeah. Ancient land that these, even before they were tomato sauce factories and wharves, they were the the, the, the land of the Gadigal people. So mm. it's it's like... Why we must never, never, ever restrict our, our storytelling and, and make it just for one set mm. of humans who can happen to um, 
afford a ticket to that to sit in that space now. It's we've got to bust our theatres mm. open precisely for the reason you just said. They they come from a working class um, patch of land. Mm. Um, we've got to welcome everyone in. Mm. Place is so important to your work, I find, or particularly yeah. this, you know. Yes. Yeah, I like to be able to almost smell it. Yeah. Smell it if we can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the next the next production will have the smell, the smell of vision to it. Yeah, yeah. Or playing Beady Bow, we use lavender. Yeah. We smoke some lavender and this sail that there's a sail that comes flying out um up the stage, a proper a proper uh Sail, and you can smell the salt on it, and the yeah. air whooshes across the audience. And I'm all for that kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I'm all for it too. The sail was spectacular, yeah. but you do it, do it in Beatty Bow with the rocks, and mm-hmm. certainly with um, the Surrey Hills area. Yeah, uh, in the Harp in the South. Yeah, you know, in, in I think the first episode of this podcast, I was talking with Paul Capsus about Angela's Kitchen. Yeah. And and how much Surrey Hills has changed even in the time that Paul's lived there. Yeah. But here you're looking as well at, at a place that has become so iconic in a certain way now to to, That's right. to to more recent generations, but actually has such a long history of working Us. class people and um, And they're there still. And they're there still underneath the gentrification. Absolutely. And the signs of them, you know, the Dealey Stocks brothel yeah. is there. It's there. You could, we walk past it every day and all we've got to do is look up and go, oh, that mm. you don't have to say dearly stocks, but we have to, you know, we can tell that that's Lick Jimmy's Chinese grocer. There are signs of that there. Like you can visit these places. Plymouth Street, the house that Ruth Park based it on, you can go and stand outside that house. It's still there. Um, with the rocks, oh, the rocks is just... My favourite part of the rocks is uh, the fact that, you know, when um, when the colonisers arrived here and invaded, uh, where the opera house now stands was an oyster midden three storeys high where um, the First Nations people would mm-hmm. eat their oysters and throw the shells. I mean, that's thousands, tens of thousands of years of oysters built up. So they excavated that. And they turned those oyster shells into concrete. So when you walk through the rocks and you just, out of the corner of your eye, see a sparkle in those old, old buildings, that's First Nations oysters. That's a First Nations meal glistening and glinting at you as you walk past, say, something that was built in, you know, the 1800s. I find that so sad Mm. um, but magical at Mm. the same time. That, that our past is always glistening and, mm. and winking at us and reminding us to notice. Mm. Uh, and, the, and Surrey Hills is the same. It, despite all the gentrification, if you look up, if you really take note, you can see the signs of, of what's been and also in a way of what's to come. Mm. Um, I love that. I love that. And I just, I just refuse to, and as an outsider who still sees Sydney like a kind of kaleidoscope of time and place and history and characters, I'd, I, I don't think I'll ever get sick of just exploring this city. Kip, Kip wants me to do a play for every suburb. <laughs> <laughs> totally. He was, he's like, what's next? Let's do Bondi. Let's yeah, go totally. Marrickville. Yeah, Marrickville. Totally. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. 
Yeah. And in fact, one of my one of my very first plays that I wrote in Sydney was about Penrith. So I do have Penrith covered as well. Mm. Um, but there is just something about the research as well. You do get to speak to people. Um, you get to chat to people who lived in Surrey Hills at the same time that Ruth Park lived, that had conversations with her, that lived in the slums um, as they were known then, that played in Frog Hollow, which mm. doesn't exist anymore, except as a, as a park. You know, these people, these people still exist and if you get them talking. There's a man that I ended up having several beers with in the rocks when I was just, I did my own little pub crawl one day, because why not? It's research. Yeah. <laughs> and I got talking to a guy who'd lived in the rocks uh, he'd been in the rocks for 85 years. Um, Incredible. It was astounding to, to chat to him. He was 92. Um, and hearing his version of the rocks and how it's shifted, yeah. If I was on my phone, I would have, I would have missed that mm. conversation. Yeah. Well, look, I, I second the you doing a play for every subject. <laughs> Uh, I've recently moved to Glebe and during COVID I did so much Glebe. reading about Glebe, which started because I did a frog pond and there's this whole Glebe frog and then it opened up this whole... And, and you just don't even think about the history of oh. some of the places you you just casually live in. Yeah, Glebe is... Um, my dad, 10-pound pond Vietnam veteran, uh, but when he came to visit me in Sydney for the first time, he said... I want to. I want to go to Glebe. Yeah. I'm like what? Why would you want to go to Glebe? I just want to go to Glebe. So like, okay. So we went to Glebe, and it turns out that's where he'd have his reckies when when he was training at Puckapunyal. Mm. On his weekends off before going to Vietnam, he'd come to Glebe, and he'd come. He'd go to the Toxteth. And this is no word of a lie. We went into this this bar, mm. and Dad was you know, looking around going, it's changed a bit, but because there was a woman that used to sit there, her name was, I think it was Mabel or something. So Mabel would sit there. Uh, she was, you know, the, the local gal. And, uh, yeah, she'd try and pick me up every time I came in here with my uniform. And bugger me if Mabel doesn't walk out of the toilet and take a seat at the stool. No. This is what? 50 years later, yeah. 40 years later, um, and recognised Dad. And they got chatting again and it was like, <laughs> this is wild. This yeah. is Sydney. This is Sydney. This is Glebe. Yeah. This, this is, is history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Incredible. <laughs> A lot of my stories happen in pubs, just letting you know. Oh, look, mine, mine too. I, just, <laughs> I thought I'd mention the frog so I sounded a bit more yeah. sort of tied to nature. <laughs> totally. Um, hey, it's hard for some new works to to not become deeply associated with their first productions, especially mm. when they're mm-hmm. their landmark works like this. You mentioned it earlier, but I, I, I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit about that that process of collaboration, that importance of bringing that team around yeah. to pull off something of this scale. Yeah. You need your team and you need to be there for them. Mm. Uh, Theatre is a team effort. It blows my mind how much... And I love sports. I, I wish we could. We could. I wish our, our leaders would see theatre as the team sport that it is. That it employs this incredible bunch of people to put the game together, mm. and to put on a night of thrilling excitement. You know, and and exactly what a football mm. game does, but with a little bit more. I, I think of a lasting mm. memory to it. 
And how fragile that and process. Fragile, so fragile. I, I mean, I'm in awe of our theatre workers, mm-hmm. our arts workers. You know, in Tech Week, when you're sitting there and it's two in the morning, three in the morning, and everyone's still there trying to work out how to get this show to its abs- absolute optimum with two days to go kind of thing, you know, and, and everyone's sitting there and they're, everyone's exhausted and weary and dark rings and having their 17th coffee, but you get it done. It's a beautiful, beautiful, and I trust it. I really trust mm-hmm. uh, the people that I hand my play over to. I'm very, um, I, I'm, I like to have a say in um, who gets to play the roles or who I'd like to see on the stage. I love seeing new faces on a stage. Mm. It's really important to me that we fill our spaces with um, with new artists constantly and our audiences with new audiences yeah. constantly. Uh, I'm really lucky that the STC, for some reason, allowed me to sit in the room the entire time. Um, for Harp in the South, I was there for the entire eight-week rehearsal process. For Beatty Bob, I was there every day. It just means... And I don't make a nuisance of myself, mm. <laughs> I hope. But it's just, it's important for me to see that, to see uh, if a line doesn't feel right to an actor, if they keep um, egging on it or something, then it might not need to be there. Um, to see someone do something improvised and think it's really funny and go, just can we keep that, can we put that in? Um, to come up with solves for, for all sorts of situations. I love the solve. Mm. I love everyone getting their heads together and going, how are we going to solve this? Yeah. I think it's a really beautiful craft and an ancient craft, mm. uh, the ancient craft of storytelling. And the fact that so every good story has many, many characters and many, many storytellers to it. So, yeah, the more the merrier as far mm. as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah. There was also a, quite a, a brilliant and unique language brought design language brought to each section yes of the event yeah yeah can you talk about that a little bit i just trust yeah yeah (laughs) i have no i don't have a design bone in my body um but i love what our designers do yeah uh and i love that uh fly david flasher works a lot with a found object sort of um um aesthetic and that's like my playwriting mm. it's very found object it's it's picking up that stone and going oh i've found this interesting artifact here i'm going to get that into the play and that's pretty that's shiny mm. that's sad let's get it all in together and david does that with his design he he kind of cobbles together a beautiful set that then shifts again that then shifts again uh and so when I know that that's the aesthetic we're working with, then I can fine-tune my play to fit it, can fine-tune the language to fit it. Mm. Um, same with, you know, Renee's costume design, Renee Mulder. If someone comes out in an amazing dress, then it's great. I can have a character comment on that. Um, you know, the, and Ruth Ruth's descriptions of characters are so great. There's an amazing description in the book of Margaret's... Um, hair her perm her permanent mm, wave mm. and to have fun with that and to say to Renee what what is a permanent wave in you know 1948 Surrey Hills 
it's appalling. It's yeah. terrible. It looks awful. And then you put it on Anita Hegg's head and you've got this other story going on that's just delightful. So I really, I really trust in the, mm. in the design elements, lighting, sound. I always have music in mm. my plays. Um, again, community. This is a community. The Harp in the South community couldn't afford anything. They they had, they get a radio later in the play, but really all they have is, is each other's voices mm. and each other's stories and each other's songs. So there's a songline element. Uh, and so a lot of my uh, research goes into what were the songs of the time that would be sung in the streets of Surrey Hills and they're all in there. Mm. Uh, so I also have to really rely on on my sound designer and vocal coaches to to get that as well. I can't sing to save my life, but I love... I'm, I would I'm never always, have guessed that about you. Oh, I'm shocking. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I can belt out a cold chisel number. Yeah. If, oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> at karaoke, <laughs> but I can't do the sweet little theatrical singing numbers. But I... Every time there's a singing rehearsal, I'm the first there yeah. to just live vicariously. Yeah. There is a song in the Harp, Harp in the South that we use called Shula Roon, which is an uh, Irish song, and it's only sung by women as they're calling out to each other across um, hills and um, mm. glades. And that uh, that was in Misses. And it was that beauty, and to get all those women on stage just calling out this song to one another was uh, the seed of Granny's story in Playing Beady Bow, where she says, we women are always calling out to one another across time. Uh, the seed came from using Shularoon in Harp in the South. There's, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Songs. Songs. Yeah, there's this kind of oral history that they carry. Yeah, that's right. And it still happens. I had two school kids uh, walk past my house uh, yesterday. They're in school uniform and they were singing, I don't know what the song, it was beautiful. It it sounded like it was um, in an Indian dialect and it was just this beautiful song as they walked past with their school bags. And Mm. I went, I love that. (laughs) I love that song is everywhere. And I love to remind people of that when when they come and see the shows, Mm. particularly with Ruth. She puts the songs in the book too. It must be quite extraordinary when when so many Australian playwrights, you know, I hear write for the stages that are being programmed, you know, write for people, write, you know, to have the opportunity to write a vast world yes yeah Uh, and the deliciousness of being able to do that it's so delicious it's so delicious to be told go crazy Mm. to have the a series of stc artistic directors say to me how many do you need like let's go big and i remember asking for 10 um and jonathan said can you do it with how about how about we do it for twenty and then we'll cut back maybe a little bit later? But so he gave me the the right to write mm. for twenty. When and I didn't end up using those other two. I was like, we can do it with eighteen. Uh, that is an I know that's an absolute privilege. It's an absolute luxury to do that. And coming from independent theatre, which is where I come from and where I return to a lot, where you you know you write for two, three, four maximum, mm. depending on how many the dressing mm. rooms can hold. Yeah. <laughs> to have that yeah. 
adds another pressure as well because you don't want to let down any one of those 18 actors. Mm. You want to make sure that every single one of them gets their moment. Mm. Um, and luckily in Half in the South, they got several of those moments. They all played several characters each. And uh, th- and that's part of theatre fun as well. Yeah. The hat swapping. It's gorgeous to watch. Yeah, it's just a delight. It's gorgeous to watch. And even in uh, recently playing Beatty Bow, you go, oh, is that? You know, even in the preset, I was like, was that? You know, yeah, that's that, right. It's amazing to just see this constant transformation of actors. Constant. And I do yeah. wish that people could see backstage just yeah. how much running, ripping off of wigs, jumping on, you know, leaping over each other to, to make mm. the entrance over the other side in a completely new costume with mm. a completely new accent in a completely different character. That is, it's, a tr- it's an extraordinary thing mm. to do. And... Uh, and also not be out of breath, you know, just to end. Yeah, um, I just think it's it's so much fun. I wish people knew that mm. side of things as well. But that's our that's our little secret. That's our little secret. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what do you? How do you feel about Australian theatre right now? Oh, so proud of it. I'm particularly proud of us now, having not had any for a while. Mm. How we've taken care of each other. Um, during this COVID beast and it's made us reevaluate our theatre necessarily. It's made us look at our stories and our spaces Mm. and go, what's our responsibility to this space and this place and these people? Um, And I think we've done it well. Time will tell. Mm. We've got a long way to go. But I feel like there's a definite shift in... um, in the stories we're telling and the people we're seeing mm. on stage and the and, and 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 off stage too and in our audiences yeah um it's got to continue it's got to be safe it's got to be respectful uh it's got to be filled with love um and we don't often get that from our politicians mm. that uh, we don't often get it from um our support networks, and I think a lot, a lot of the time, people out there think it's it's a non-career that it doesn't. They they don't really understand how hard we work as an industry and how much we bring in as an industry to this nation. And I think um, the the respect has to start with us, the self-respect and the self-love, and the, and and taking care of one another. And I think we might have lost that for a little bit. Mm. Became very competitive there for a while, I thought. Uh, but I think we're holding out. We're, we're looking at each other. A little more, mm. which is really good. Mm. Do you think? I do think. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a, I feel a different energy. Yeah. Post. <laughs> the collapse of everything. Yeah. Last year, um, I do, but I, I, like you say, I hope we hold on to it. I think people can fall into cycles of. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And there's still such a. Sort of an equity between talent and and an opportunity, or even building stages, yes. you know, yeah. pools of money, all that stuff. Yeah, and that's when things can start to over time become unbalanced. I love the risks you take with your theatre making, oh. despite everything. I, I mean, Harp and Angels was on pretty much around the same time. Mm, that's true. Yeah, and it was so wonderful that people were coming into these spaces to watch long-form theatre in vastly different ways, you know. Um, 
I just think that was a really incredible moment and seeing that that is you can do that you can do that at the old fits you can put on mm. angels in America yeah <laughs> yeah and and also I remember distinctly uh, seeing everyone in the break and seeing your incredible cast and they were you it was an extra show that mm. day so they were doing extra shows because it was such a hit but they were so and they were so exhausted but so mm. Ready to go on again, raring to go. Let's tell this story. Mm. Um, this story is worth telling. It was so invigorating, and mm. yeah, I just um, that energy is something that I think we need to maintain. Mm. The boldness, the risk taking. Never rest on our laurels. We've always got to keep mm. challenging, challenging, challenging. The norm. Yeah, absolutely, and. Yeah. You know, and whether you're in a independent space or in the Ross Packer, being able to, like you said at the beginning, just falling in love with people, with characters, with actors. Yeah. It's, it's so magic when it happens yeah. and you can just sit there and just give yourself over to, to the, the world that's yeah unfolding. What a job. Yeah. What a job to just tell stories, mm. important stories but also that we get to listen to so many stories in the process of that yeah. and learn so much about our country and our, our world and its inhabitants. I just, it's, it's glorious. Mm. I never want to take it for granted, mm. ever. Yeah. Yeah, a privilege, a responsibility and an absolute mm. joy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that beautiful note, <laughs> thank you so much. A pleasure, Dino. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Staging the Nation. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to our podcast. See you next time. Staging the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatre's Parramatta. Executive producer, Joanne Key. Producer and technical director, Daniel Holsworth. Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening.